Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Oh, Jack. Jack O'Hara. Boy, you asked me some interesting questions, my man. It's a great question, Jack. Jack, hey, it's Josh Radder. Hey there, Jack O'Hara. It's Johnny Damon. Jack, so you had questions for me. Jack O'Hara, absolutely. This message is for Jack O'Hara. Jack, how are you? Hey, Jack. Jack, hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? What's going on, Jack? Uh, listen, man, you know, you, you, you asked me a couple questions. Broadcasting around the world, you're listening to The O Show. In the show and uh, doing your thing, I mean, you've got some pr- pretty big name guests. I've seen your, your stuff, so congratulations on your success. Jack O'Hara. Much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien with much better interviewing skills. Don't forget to share this episode on your social media. Now, let's get to it. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's totally going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said... TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. podcast ladies and gentlemen episode 473 we are presented by mayweather boxing and fitness in scottsdale remember to use that promo code capital b-l-e-a-v-50 to use that 50 percent bonus using betonline.ag we have barry Katz in the house today and if you don't know who barry is then where the hell have you been really how's it going man I feel good. I'm honored to know that uh, there were 472 guests before me that made the cut, and I, I really feel like I really feel like a winner today. I feel like I've really won the lottery, uh, being the 473rd person to come in. What's my prize? I don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, man, I, I'm so excited to talk to you today, man. Like, so so many things I wanted to pick your brain about. I know. Uh, you just wrapped up your vacation, so I'm glad we get to do this because you, um, I, I'm kind of all over the place. I do play-by-play commentary, host a podcast, I've tried stand-up comedy, I've done a few open mic nights myself, and you being in the, the comedy game, the film game for as long as you have been in, I'm very curious to know as to what sparked your interest in it from the beginning. You know, growing up in Massachusetts, going to Boston University all the way back in the day, like what, what kind of sparked your interest in that field? You know, everybody has their own thing, their their own chemical makeup that makes them lean a certain way based on the variables that come into their lives. You know, it's it's not a stretch to believe that Brawny James is playing basketball. Right. You know, that's what been exposed to his whole life and now it might be more of a shock if he didn't give a shit about basketball and wanted to play golf you know but and if that happened that would be the makeup of of him for me it's it's really strange and i think everybody out there in the audience feels the same way but we don't really think about it we're we're born and when we become aware we're in a town or a city or a home or or a country and that we had no choice to be in. We have parents that raise us or people that raise us that we had no choice in the matter we're sent to schools that we don't have a choice of going to, we take classes that we don't have a choice of going to. We have to go to Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas with relatives, you know, Uncle Joey who touches you inappropriately. You know, we have to be around all these people and the variables are set. And what's odd is that 
I came from a really small town, Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And my dad died when I was four. So I, I only had one parent's influence. But my mom was, was more of a person that really wasn't, you know, she wasn't like actively involved in like, hey, I'm going to take you to school here. I'm going to bring you to your little practice here. I'm going to encourage you. She was just trying to like, survive and uh but she was an incredible mother but wasn't involved in my like what came to me so in her bedroom she had this black and white television with the rabbit ears and i used to sit by the footboard of her bed and watch programs and one of the things I'd watch a lot of times because she was a sound sleeper, I'd sneak in there and I just was fascinated by television shows and sitcoms. And, but mainly what really moved me for some reason, and again, I don't know why, was The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And what really fascinated me were the stand-up comedians that went on. And to watch them, you know, perform with just that single camera thing. There's no, think about it. When you really think about it, like we watch all these hour specials and, you know, I did Dane Cook's Vicious Circle, probably the most, probably the most elaborate comedy special that's ever been filmed in the history of comedy. There was like 18 cameras and in the round and it was, it was crazy. It was a $1.8 million production uh, for a stand-up special. And when you think about it, and it obviously it, it helped propel him, but back then it's very similar to how it is now on social media where it was just one camera from the hips to the top of the head and a person talking to you in black and white in my television. And, um, but it was fascinating to hear those routines that made me laugh and brought joy into my life. And so, uh, not to make a story longer, but I started, uh, exploring in my basement and I remember prying open an old file cabinet and there were all these albums in there and to my surprise, growing up in an all-white town and white parents, every album in there except for three were African-American artists. So it was like Shirley Bassey, Diana Ross, Louis Armstrong, Nat King Cole, you know, all these albums of African-American artists. And then three albums, there was... Um, a Jonathan Winters comedy and tragedy, the Smothers Brothers, where they, the guy smashing the guitar over his head, um, and the button-down mind of Bob Newhart. So we didn't have a record player anymore. So I, back then, this is before your time, and some of your audience who listen to you might know this or their parents. Back then, they used to incentivize you to go to the uh, grocery store. They used to give you these things called S&H green stamps. And for every dollar you spent, they put a green stamp in your bag and you would paste them and put them into these books. And each book was worth like $5. And then you take these books to a redemption center and you'd be able to get something, an appliance or whatever. And I bought one of those fold down record players. And I started listening to the music, you know, like Shirley Bassey, Goldfinger, you know, all these things, you know, and, uh, uh, and, but the music really didn't speak to me, I guess, because I'm a Jew and I have no rhythm and uh, I have the rhythm of a furnace. Uh, so I just, uh, I listened to the comedy and I kind of, Jonathan Winters was a little crazy for me. The Smothers Brothers were cool. It was musical comedy though, which brought me back to my roots of no rhythm. 
And Bob Newhart kind of spoke to me because he was just like, he was doing dialogue humor, which he was doing these conversations with people that weren't there. But, and he never did the voices of the people. He just did it that way, very basic. If for those of you who don't know the kind of comedy, I would say uh, uh, go on YouTube and check out Ellen DeGeneres' first Tonight Show where she did three minutes of regular stand-up and then she did a conversation with God at the end. And it's that kind of uh, humor. And I memorized this routine of his called The Driving Instructor. And I started doing it at high school talent shows. And I was killing harder than the album. And I'm thinking to myself, God, you know, I, this is pretty cool. And then uh, I went to Boston and I, uh, I started doing it there, introducing the routine. And I remember this one guy at this, this comedy venue took me aside. He says, Cats, where'd you come from? You're amazing. You got to come back next week. But listen, uh, let me give you some advice. I'm like, sure, what is it? I, I love the advice. Can, can you got anything for me? He says, listen, when you're doing somebody else's routine, don't mention the person's name before you do the routine. Just take the fucking bit and steal it. No one's going to know. And then I was like, ah, okay, uh, I think I'm going to go back to my dorm room at Boston University and write my own material. And, and that's how I got started. Uh, that's funny. And like in that story alone, like comedy is so subjective. Like there's so many different types of people that you could learn from. Like they don't even have to be comedians. Like you said, like you're learning from artists and finding the comedic attributes that they apply to their music. Like just the people that you've represented, like obviously the Chappelle's, the Burr's, the Gaffigan's of the world, and you know, like just three completely different styles right there. Uh, what, what kind of, um, inspired you to get into, I don't want to call it the business side of it, but like the agent side of things, when you looked at other people and be like, they have it, I want to work with them. Honestly, uh, I'll tell you something. I guess it kind of goes back to what I just talked about. It's so ridiculous, but I remember I, I was, uh, I had a V, CR, uh, you know, which is like a $400 clock in your living room that you don't know how to use. And VHS tapes used to have three speeds. They had a two hour speed, which was the best quality, four hour speed, which was a lower quality and six hour speed, which was shittiest quality. And I used to go out on Saturday nights and, and, and put a video in the VCR to record Saturday night live. And Showtime at the Apollo. And I remember one night I watched Jennifer Holiday come out and do that song, I Am Telling You I'm Not Going. And you, and you, and you, you're gonna love me. You know, when she does that thing where, and, uh, and she was getting like a standing ovation after a minute. People were going fucking crazy. And I'm like, God damn, where in the Apollo? I gotta, I gotta represent comedians who can make people feel what she's feel, making these people feel. And so I, when I got to New York, and that's another whole long story, I used to go to the Apollo all the time. I used to go to Harlem and look at comedians because to me, you know, I don't know. It's weird. I never was around African-American people. I, and, but it's like I had to be in that scene. Like I'd go up there, I'd look like, you know, I'd be walking these rooms. I'd look like the wagon driver in Roots. You know, I'd be like, uh, Hey, everybody, how you doing? Good to see you. And I'd be the only white guy there. Uh, as Jimmy Tingle once said in Boston, he said, I look like a line of cocaine on a black album cover. Um, but their comedy spoke to me, and they there was something about my personality or who I was that they felt just as safe around me as I felt around them. And and that's where I met so many great artists and, you know, and that's where I first saw Tracy Morgan in a club up there. And 
you know, and there's so many comedians that I met and, and that's how, um, it really spoke to me that kind of where the music I said, okay, I want to, I want to work with comedians who can get this kind of response and, and make people feel something. And look, you know, comedy, the great thing about it is that there's just, there's something for everybody. You know, there's some people who, who want to feel something in their heart when they hear something. There's some people who want to hear somebody talk about political issues, and that's what really excites them. There's other people who just love people who entertain them and don't make them think about anything. Just fucking make me laugh and don't tell me an opinion. There's people who love dry, slow, methodical, jokes and there's people who it's just too much for them and they like people are fast and so there's something for everybody and it's just like music you know there's probably millions of people who have bought james blunt and barry manilow records and there's millions of people who bought megadeth and you know ozzy osbourne and Green Day and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and, you know, every, and so that's what excited me right away because I realized that, I realized at a very, very young age that the world is a very large place and you don't have to reach that many people to make your mark when you consider the percentage of people in the world. Like you could literally take, you know, Jack, you could take your whole studio and paint it entirely black, ceilings, walls, everything. And you could leave like one little speck that's white. And if we use that as a metaphor for the world and you only reach that one little speck, You'll be a fucking millionaire. And that's what's great about the business that people don't understand is that, like, if you're a comedian and you want to act, it's, it's like you're, <laughs> you can go on a hundred auditions and 99, you can just be the fucking worst audition of your life you just suck so bad and then in one audition you put it all together and you're on television for seven years and nobody cares about the 99 times you can be a comedian you can bomb 99 times in a row and then that hundredth time you put it together and you start doing something it's like holy shit Think about this for a second. I don't mean to go on a rant here, but this is what's fascinating where sports is a metaphor for comedy, but it's also not a metaphor always for life. Like, let's just take, uh, let's just take American football, like the Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. A couple of weeks ago, they were like, saying 10 and two, 10 and three. They go down to New Orleans. They play. No, they're at Tampa Bay. They play New Orleans, a 500 team, you know, ravaged with injuries and COVID and whatever. They don't score a point. Tampa Bay, with the greatest quarterback of all time and the greatest team, and Antonio Brown back then, they don't score a point. Now, to put this in perspective for you and the audience listening, there's 50, I think there's 53 or 55 players on a football team. We could have wheeled in 55 coffins and lined them up for every play, and they would have scored just as many points as the Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. How the fuck is that possible? And it's possible in life and the way it relates to comedy is that you could be the greatest comedian in the world. You know, you could be 
you know, Dave Chappelle and you can go into a show and you can just, it just, you lay an egg. But people don't shut you down because you have a lineage, you have a legend that's followed you. So you have a bad night or you whatever. They know you're going to come back and win again. And if you're a comedian also, and you're setting goals for yourself and you're, you're moving up the ladder and you've had your best set of your career, it's like you're climbing up a mountain and you're on that ledge and you see what that ledge feels like. But then the next show you bomb and you fall down. That's okay because you can still see the ledge that you were on before and you know you can get to that ledge again. And then when you're up on that ledge, you look to the next ledge. And then if you fall again, you still see and know you've done it. The other side of the coin where it doesn't work for life is like, let's say Tampa Bay, what are they, 10 and 4 now, 11 and 4. Let's just say they're 11 and 4 now, okay? If, I, if you got a job at a pizza shop, okay, and you made 15 pizzas, and four of them go out and they're completely wrong. You're fired. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 11 and four. They're like the head of the, their division. They're in the playoffs. They're going to get a bye probably. It's like, but in real life, you can't fuck up like that. So the people listening who want jobs in the entertainment business, let's say you want to be an assistant to somebody at an agency. You can't fail four out of 15 times. You're fired. There's a thousand people waiting to take your place. But if you're a comedian, you can fail four out of 15 times. Stuff that doesn't fucking matter. Because you got the next time. No one cares. No one cares. No one cares you've bombed in front of 200 people. You do your first Netflix special, you're going to reach millions of people. The first time you do an hour special, you're going to reach more people in, that, in the first airing, just the first day, than the entire amount of people that watched you throughout your entire career. And probably a hundred times more than that. So that's what's great about our business is that we have in comedy, we have the opportunity and the possibilities are endless. Look, Jack, you're doing your podcast, right? You know your numbers. You don't have to tell me your numbers. So we look at things with two lenses, okay? One lens is you look at your numbers and you're like, uh, Fuck, I'm a fucking loser. I've done 473. I can't believe I got cats on. This is going to really knock the ratings down. I got 473 things, and look at my... Look, I've only reached this many people. What the fuck? I mean, I'm killing myself here. I put hours and hours into this. I am a fucking loser. And then the other side of the coin is, you look at the numbers, and you're like, Holy shit, 473 episodes ago, I had zero listeners and zero people watching me. And now, look how many people I have. I am, I'm fucking killing it. I am Jack O'Hara, motherfuckers. You know, so it's the lens of how you look at things as an artist and the people that look at the lens through the glasses that show that things are not going well are normally the ones that are never going to do well. And the things that people that look through the lens and say, Hey, I see the possibility of what can happen. Look, I've worked with over 25 artists who started in a studio apartment, okay, which is essentially, as uh, I think Maranzio Vance, the comedian, says, that's one room away from being homeless, yeah. okay? They started with nothing. They became multimillionaires and household names. How does that happen? It happens because you put your head down, you work hard, and you see the possibilities and you're training for that day. And going back to the Tom Brady example, 
we all watch the Super Bowl. Your audience listening now, we all watch the Super Bowl. We all saw his performance in the Super Bowl beating Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. You know, we didn't see, we didn't see 99.9% of the time he spent working hard to get to the point when the moment came and the spotlight was on him. And every artist has to be cognizant of the fact that it's about the work you put in all the time up until you get that audition or up until you get that moment where you've been hired and you go on a set. And use this as an example, again, like the NFL, you know, like being a comedian or let's say even a comedian, let's say trying to get an acting role. So it's like you submit yourself to the audition. It's like they call, we'd like you to audition. You're like, yes, I got the audition. If you're a, a football team, yeah, we, we got the, we got the second, we got the wild card position here. We're good. Okay. And then you go to the audition and they say, Hey, uh, that was really good. We'd like to bring you back for producers. Hey, we're going to the wild card game. It's set and we're doing it and we're going. Okay. The audition for producers, like they want to see you again. We won the wild card game. We did. We won. We, we got to play the division game. Oh, okay. And then you go and you go for more people at the studio or wherever it is. Let's say you, you go and they say you, uh, you go with the director and then you're, they say, we want you, we want you to test for the studio. You're like, yes, I'm testing for the studio. Hey, we're, oh, we won the conference game. We won the, oh, we got to go for the championship game, huh? Okay. And then you test at the studio and you're like, uh, we're going to bring you back for network. Yeah, I did it. I, I, I'm going to the next level. I, I, I won the, we won the conference championship. Well, we're going to the Super. We're going to the Super. But we got to win the Super Bowl. So then you go to the final thing with the network, and they say, "Oh, we we're going to go in a different direction." And it's like, "Oh, we went to the Super Bowl, but we're Kansas City. We lost." Or you get the role and you win. So there's always these these levels that you you have to keep exceeding your expectations and everyone else's expectations. It's all about, it's all about adding value in anything you do and showing people that there's that undeniable value and they have to, they have to work with you. Even when you're a young comic and you're working the open mics, somebody comes up to you after a show where you kill and they say, Hey, Jack, you know, really love what you do. I'm doing this show in Valencia. I got 25 bucks. You want to do the show? You're like, fucking yeah, man. I got the show in Valencia. Oh, I got to still perform at the show in Valencia and kill like I did just now. Or else he's never going to book me again. And so that's how I feel about the business and how it is. It's the possibilities are endless. But your odds are better when you're training every day and you're working hard every day towards moving that rock up the hill and, and getting to your destination. Right. And like, just in that one analogy, like you could be Pat Mahomes and losing the Super Bowl, but at least you got to that path where it's like, okay, now I have the experience and you've developed relationships along the way where like, you're not starting from scratch. You're starting now from experience and you have a few people that, I've seen your work and believe in your work. And like there's especially in, you know, your line of work, there's people like Bill Burr was bombing in Philly that one time and he went on the rant and that's kind of what blew him up, right? Like it was kind of like a, a situation where he had to adapt and like what could have been like one of his biggest failures turned into his biggest success. And now you see him now 15 years later as one of the greatest to ever do it right now. Yeah, but also what you see is when the Super Bowl ended you did not have less respect for Patrick Mahomes. Absolutely not. Because you already saw his body of work before then. Now, if it had been Blake Bortles in the Super Bowl and he lost, you would have lost respect for him. You're like, hey, motherfucker, you, you, got, you had your moment. 
This yeah. is where you had the shine and you fucked up. You remember Eli Manning won those two Super Bowls. You know, you take those two Super Bowls away, you know, those playoff runs away, and is he a Hall of Fame quarterback? No, but he beat the GOAT twice. Yep. And and so he exceeded his expectations. We didn't we didn't look at Tom Brady and say, hey, we have less respect for you because we'd seen him do it before. The last Super Bowl he lost, he passed for 505 yards, but he lost, you know? So it's like legends, it doesn't matter if you take a little hit, you can always, people are always looking for, it's like my mother used to watch like sitcoms and stuff and I'd say, uh, you know, how was Raymond this week? And she'd say, ah, the show wasn't really that good this week. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, really? She said, yeah, it was. I said, you're going to watch next week? She said, of course I am. It's a great show. It's just had a bad, you know, you know, they can't all be gems. Just like this podcast, you know, this podcast is going to be judged with the 472 <laughs> other podcasts and people are going to be like, look, I'm going to, let's rate, let's rate Jack O'Hara's top 473 podcasts and let's see how we rate everybody and i personally am looking forward to being at least 471 <laughs> i i consider you like top 50 right now this is some great stuff all right let's hope great, i can great storytelling great analogies i mean you're hitting it right on the head let's hope i can break into the top 25 in the final half hour <laughs> we're only at halftime man still got the whole second half Thank you for that halftime speech. But that's so interesting because, like, I mean, you represented Chappelle for eight years, right? Like, he is undoubtedly said to be one of the greatest comics ever, even, you know, the comics approval, too, with everybody in the industry. Like, he is one of the greatest ever. In those early years, though, did you see him drop eggs? Did you see him bomb at certain places and, like, just have to pick himself back up? Like, did he have any early on failure moments before he took that long hiatus? Of course. I mean, I mean, you, everybody does, everybody dies a miserable death. And, um, sometimes it's really fun to see, uh, not for them, but you can laugh about it afterwards. I remember one time he's a really young comic, but he was, had done really well. And somebody in the crowd of the Boston comedy club, which was a club that I, had for a long, long time, legendary place in New York City where he started um, there in New York. Um, and I remember he went up and he was just, you know, as, you know, as a young kid, he was just working out material and just standing there thinking about stuff to say. And somebody in the crowd said, you know, I paid money. Could you, I mean, show that you care. And they got in a little thing and he said, listen, you're just not working hard. You know, it's like I, you know, I came here, I want to see a show. You're just standing there and just things off your head. And I remember he got so frustrated. He said something that he never said again. He said, uh, why don't you look at my fucking bank account? And he dropped the microphone and walked off stage. And I remember taking Dave aside, you know, because he was like 18 years old at the time. I said, hey, look, man, I understand where you're frustrated. But that's that doesn't help you. That no. doesn't help him. That just helps feed the cycle of negativity. You know, there's always going to be nights where there's going to be somebody who gets under your skin. But the mastery of you as a great artist will be how you handle the lows more than how you handle the highs. Ugh. You know, it's like, it's not like, uh, you know, the, it's probably written on caveman walls and cavewoman walls. Essentially, you can't judge somebody accurately by how they are in success the way to really look at yourself in the mirror is how you handle 
the things that are the most difficult. And, you know, I've had a lot of things happen in my life that have been really, really um, rough, you know, and I think to myself, I mean, I'm sure they were rougher for other people. You know, I, when I was, I was married when I was younger and my wife passed away, she was 23. Obviously she's no longer here. So it was a, a, a more of a tragedy for her than it was for me. But, you know, when, when you have a hole blown through you, whether it's personally or in your career, um, I mean, you essentially have, you essentially have a couple of choices. You can lay in bed and say, woe is me, or you can figure out a way to use what happened to you to inspire you to get to another place to where you can help uh, more people or inspire more people or impact more people. There's always going to be people who don't like you. There's always going to be people that like you. Um, if you think everybody likes Dave Chappelle, you're sadly mistaken. I love Dave Chappelle. I, uh, uh, my work with him, I mean, changed my life forever. I mean, I, I think I did seven pilots at Disney. I think we did $400 million movies or something like that together. Um, uh, just uh, probably 40 television appearances before he was 18 and before he was 20. Um, just an amazing person. And then every time I'm around him and, and see him, it's incredible. Um, and to stay on top as long as he has, it's, I mean, you've heard the expression, everybody in your audience has heard the expression. It's not getting there, it's staying there. Yeah, it's fucking hard getting there. But it's definitely hard staying there because you have to figure out a way to do things in a way that sort of reinvent and bring your audience to another level. There's people that I love in the business that I haven't really seen in a while. And I... I know they have all the tools to exceed what they did before, but I don't exactly know how they're going to do it, but I know that they can. Somebody like Jim Jeffries is just fucking brilliant. Now, I haven't necessarily seen that much of him lately or as much as I have in the past. Does that mean that Jim Jeffries is, you know, fallen off or is, is, is out of it? No, it just means that sometimes there's these ebbs and flows in the industry where they don't maybe hire you as much or don't give you as many chances or however it might go. Whereas somebody like David Spade, his like, I mean, his DNA, it always appears like he's always hired. It's like no matter what happens, no matter what gets canceled, no matter what goes down, he's always hired. He never doesn't have a job. And some people might sit around on their television or in, the, in their living room and say, you know, why the fuck does David Spade always get hired? I don't say that. Uh, because he has a style that I think is really accessible to everybody. And I've always loved him and I've always loved the way he approaches the business. But part of the way he approaches the business is like, it's kind of like, a, you know, I don't, it's like, you know, he cares so deeply, but he's got that, that energy like, Hey, I don't give a fuck, you know, I'm just going to be who I am. And if they like me, they like me. If they don't, they don't. Um, so there's no rhyme or reason why I think like Gabriel Iglesias, brilliant. The guy makes millions of dollars. Yep. I haven't really seen him that much lately as I normally have. Does that mean that he's not brilliant and he's not wonderful and tremendous? No, it just means that there's something that happens in the industry sometimes where just kind of these ebbs and flows. And, and whereas Ray Romano, I mean, here's a guy who completely 
change the listening of the world. It's like, okay, I'm a stand-up comedian and I'm a guy in a sitcom essentially playing myself. And I haven't won any awards for what I do. And everybody around me wins the awards, similar to Seinfeld in Seinfeld. But then he finishes the show, doesn't know another show for a little bit, uh, men of a certain age. But then he makes a decision. I don't know when he makes it, how he makes it, what the thought process it is. But I can only presume that he makes the decision and says, I want to be the best fucking actor I can possibly be. And then he did a show called Vinyl. Now, the show Vinyl was canceled, but if you ever saw it, he was brilliant. And then he did The Big Sick, and he was brilliant. And then he did The Irishman, and he was award-worthy. You get the feeling like this is a guy who's going to win an Academy Award. And, and you can feel the shift. You can feel the change in how he's presenting himself and he's making he probably is making as much money for those film roles as he made for maybe three episodes of the last season of everybody loves raymond but he doesn't care because respect outlasts cash and that's the thing that i love about comedy artists and how people are and and the how people sort of get hot, they move into certain places and other people move out and whatever, because it's hard to stay relevant and on top. And you got to figure out a way to be able to do that and, and work harder at it. And it's hard to work harder at your craft when you're more comfortable. Think about it. Like if your podcast started making, you know, you got paid $20 million for your podcast, would you work as hard? The, the, the natural inclination is to take your foot off the gas pedal and just relax a little bit, enjoy the ocean. You know, your thing it's a, the inclination is just to sit around and just enjoy the ocean. Yeah. But, but the thing is, is like, I don't think that that's what the greats do. And for me, like the reason why I showed you the ocean is like my whole life, I always wanted to live and work in a place where I saw the ocean. It comforts me, but it, there's a price to be paid to have that ability to do that. And you could be much more successful financially and have much more money if you decide that you want to live in Studio City or Glendale or in Peoria, Illinois, or in certain place here. I don't give a fuck. I don't care if I'm living in a tent or a mansion on the ocean. I need to see the fucking ocean. That's what I need. I don't care if it costs so much money. I have $6 and a bucket of chicken at the end of the day. I'll take the $6 and the Subway sandwich and have that rather than be in a situation where I'm not in an in a way or a place where it makes me happy and it's the same for the artist the artist the ocean for the example of the artist is working in situations that make them feel creatively happy and if, if they're getting paid a, a million dollars to work in a place where they're not creatively happy or they're getting ten thousand dollars to work in a place where they are the greats will choose the $10,000 gig because they know that they're going to make it. They know that's going to happen. Why did Chappelle turn down $50 million? Do you know anyone in the world that would turn down 50? Do you know anyone in the world that would turn down 500 that forget that? Do you know anyone in your life that would, anybody in the audience, know anybody in your life that would turn down a suitcase of $50,000? Most people, not even $5,000 they would walk away from. Why did he walk away? He walked away because he felt 
that he'd be more satisfied inside if he didn't take the money and do something that he wasn't feeling great about. And he could start doing the things that he did feel great about, that he had control over, that he had full control over. And he eventually knew that he would get his day in the sun. And 12 years later, he signed a $60 million deal with Netflix, and then it ended up probably being $120 million. And that $50 million seems inconsequential. And, and I think it's a great, great way to look at the world in the comedy business. Just do what you love. Be true to yourself. Work your fucking ass off. When no one's watching, work harder. And then when that spotlight shines on you and you fucking blow people the fuck away and everybody in the crowd is like, who the fuck is that person? All the comics are saying, Jesus Christ, I fucking hate that guy. How did he do so well? All the waitresses and bartenders and busboys are texting the manager of the club who was in there that night. Then the manager's texting the owner of the club talking about you. That's what you want. You always want to have that moment where you blow people the fuck away. And if you blow people the fuck away, you control your own destiny. I mean, it's very interesting because comedy really is the one true industry where if you aren't being your authentic self, like you're exposed just like that. You know, everybody will know. It's like he's lying. She's not telling the truth. Like that kind of felt weird. You have to be yourself at the end of the day, right? Whether you bomb, whether you, you, you hit it off, obviously with some people you bomb for 15 years and then you finally make, you make it big time. My last question to you, the final Hail Mary here, since we have like 10 minutes to you is to kind of bring this full circle. You talk about like that undeniable factor for a comedian because comedy is so subjective everybody has their different style everybody in the audience has their different likes and wants when it comes to a comedian that they're listening to you told dave Chappelle, like on the very first few days that you met him that he was going to be a star how, how can you tell as a manager as an agent that someone has that undeniable factor that they're going to be a bigger and above everyone else that you see given that it's so spread out in the different types of styles that there are in comedy that's a great question. I, I think I'm a, I'm a bad person to ask because there are certain things that I've had in my life, qualities that I don't even understand. I mean, I don't understand how I can shake a kid's hand who I never even saw perform like Dave Chappelle and say, you're going to be the biggest star in comedy you're going to change the face of the profession. You're going to have all these specials. You're going to act in all these things. You're going to have millions of dollars. I don't know why when I shake somebody's hand, sometimes I get that kind of like the movie, The Dead Zone, where he used to shake somebody's hand and see the future. It doesn't always happen, but I have a really incredible intuition when it comes to talent. And... Um, and I, not everybody has that. And, and obviously, why would they? You know, and they use other ways to judge talent. They use the progression of how they're working. They use their writing. They use their ability to act out pieces in their stand-up or how they write on the page, uh, how they are as a person. I've always just been an instinct person. That's why when I, you know, I started, you know, I don't want to digress, but it's like one of the things about myself that I often, you know, just like comedy artists, I look in the mirror often and I say to myself, like, you know, am I doing the right thing here? Uh, should I be doing this? Is this the way to go? Because I love doing a lot of things, especially a lot of things that help the comedy community, if I can. That's why I started the podcast, Industry Standard, like eight, like eight and a half years ago. I don't make any money off Industry Standard. It's like it's never been a thing to make money. It's always been a thing like I want to do something where people like, 
the Judd Apatows and Bill Burrs of the world listen and they learn stuff about people in the business, but also young people learn about the business and how to get better and how to move forward in a way that's going to be incrementally beneficial to them instead of going through all the bullshit that I went through. Yeah. That's why I started the blueprint uh, for success in the comedy business. And I did this multi-tiered subscription program because I, I wanted to figure out a way to symbiotically help people with all these different things but not take up all my time for the other stuff I do. So the podcast and that and consulting that I do, I can do in my nights, I can do on the weekends, I can do that and I can concentrate on my management and the film and television production. But in terms of artists and how you judge artists, I'm like a weird anomaly because like when I do the podcast or I do the blueprint and I talk to people or do one-on-one sessions and consulting, they're surprised because I don't have any like workbook. I'm like, I'm not like here, here, take this sheet home and fill it out and then do this, this. I'm an instinct guy. I'll go across from somebody. They'll tell me what they're doing. I'll be like, uh, I think you should do this, 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 and this. And then another person will be completely the opposite. Sometimes I'll be like, I don't even know why I'm telling this, but I think you should do this. This is the way I think you should do it. Right. I don't, and, I, and I look at them and I say, listen, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but it's work 25. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.